standing and you're able to do so. Praise God. Very thankful we are able this weekend to have Brother Gleason be a part of our leadership summit coming up as well as our service this evening. Those of you that don't know, Brother Gleason pastors in Kansas City, Missouri, great church there, and uh, very apostolic, thriving church. And uh, I have uh, considered it a great privilege the past couple of years to be able to cross paths several times now with Brother Gleason, there's there's some people that you have the chance to be around. There's just I don't know really how to describe it. It's just something about their their presence, sort of, that just kind of challenges you and inspires you. And uh, to me, brother brother Gleason is one of those men. How many of you participate in the Antioch ministerial license process? You've finished it or you're in it. First first step in that process is a message Brother Gleason preached several years ago at Because of the Times and very challenging message to men and women of God. And so I'm thankful and we want him to just be at home here this weekend. And I believe he's got some things from the Lord to communicate to us. And so Brother Gleason, thank you for being with us this weekend. It's such a privilege to have you here at Antioch. Come and take your liberty. Thank you, Pastor. Praise the Lord, everyone. Amen. Let's clap our hands to the Lord Jesus because there's nobody like Him. Hallelujah. We praise you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We worship you, Jesus. Lord, you are here in this house. You are in this place, and we magnify and bless your name. Praise God. Praise God. We worship you, Jesus. Amen. I love what I see, hear, and feel here at Antioch. And I love this service tonight because it's been all about Jesus. And if it's not about Jesus, it's not about nothing. But he's worth making something of and out of. And we exalt him and honor him tonight what a joy to be back here at Antioch we were here just a few years ago I think for Bishop's 44th anniversary if I'm not mistaken and it's a thrill to be back I love your pastor and his wife and their children and we thank God for them and their uh, friendship and we give honor to the bishop and the mother of this church, we appreciate Brother and Sister Wright so very much. God bless them. See, one of my assignments at General Conference, I'm on the uh, general board, and so I'm also on the executive board, so I get there before the general board gets there. And so I always get a text from Bishop, and it says... Please reserve my seat. And he wants to sit right back there on the back row, on the end. And he wants Brother Rick McGriffin, superintendent from Hawaii. 
he suffers for the Lord in, in Hawaii. He wants him to be right next to him. So that, that's my number one assignment at General Conference. Make sure Bishop gets his spot. <laughs> Amen. And we, we love him. Thank God for him. I'm glad to see my Holy Land tour compadres, Mike and Kevin. They are the only two that would have the guts to prank call Lee Stone King. I'm surprised fire didn't fall from heaven. They called him at 8 o'clock in the morning like they were room service, disguised their voice, said, Reverend Stone King, this is room service. Did you order fried chicken? <laughs> they let me listen to it. I'm telling you what, Brother Stone King was caught flat-footed. He said, no, what? What is this? Yes, you ordered fried chicken room, whatever it was, with pickles. <laughs> then I knew they were just making it up as they went. And finally, it was Mike or Kevin. They couldn't hold their character, and they just busted out laughing. Brother Stone King said, oh, you rascals. <laughs> what a great moment that was. The only two in the history of the oneness movement to get away with pranking Brother Stone King. <laughs> glad to see them. Glad to see all of you. Praise God. So just while you're standing for a moment, let's read one verse. John 14, 15. John 14, 15. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. One translation said, If you love me, obey me. That sort of nails it down. If you love me, obey me. So tonight, I want to speak to you on the subject for a a little while, almost said for a few moments. It'll be more than a few moments. I want to talk to you about disciples obey Jesus Christ. Amen. Disciples obey Jesus Christ. Are you thankful to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you thankful that He's your Savior? Amen. Is He your Master and your Lord? Praise God. If it wasn't for Him, we wouldn't be anything. We wouldn't be anywhere. We give Him all the praise and all the glory tonight. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Five years ago, this time of the year, I was praying and I was asking God, for direction for the Life Church in Kansas City. I was seeking the Lord about the coming year and the vision that the Lord wanted to give us. Can I tell you something? God is always speaking. We're not always listening, but He's always speaking. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The verb tense there means constantly knocking, 
God is always speaking. And the challenge is, are we listening? Because he always has something to say. If we seek the Lord to hear his voice, he will always speak to us. Amen? He will always speak to us. So I'm seeking the Lord and I'm asking God for direction for the coming year. And I did this for several days in a row. And finally, I heard a word from the Lord. And the Lord said, go make disciples. I don't know how the Lord speaks to you, but he always speaks to me in a deep, rich, baritone voice. (laughs) I actually didn't hear the audible voice, but I heard the voice of God in my spirit. He said, go make disciples. I got to be honest with you. My reaction was, hello. <laughs> you know, I didn't go, duh. You know, that, I, I don't advise that when you're talking. You never want to, duh, God. But my attitude was sort of like, I've been trying to do this. And the Lord gave me an afterword. And the afterword was, you have much to learn. You have much to learn about my mission. You have much to learn about what I have called you to do. And I simply felt called to go back to the scripture, to go back to the text. We understand that the Bible is a book of revelation. The nature of the Bible is that it is a prophetic revelatory book. How many of you have ever had the experience of reading a verse that you've read countless times and yet new light came to it? Shake your hand at me if you've had an experience like that. Why why does that happen? How can we... I've read this ten times. I should have exhausted that. No, no, no. Have you ever had someone recommend a book to you And you buy the book and you're all excited that, man, they were just freaked out about this book and I can't wait to read it. And you start reading, you get into the second chapter and the third chapter and the fourth chapter. And you're thinking, are we reading the same book? And it's not talking to you like it talked to them. Why did the book talk to them and it didn't talk to you? It's very simple. You are not where they were when they were reading the book. So just put it on the shelf and live a few more days. And then you may remember when you're going through something or you're in a season of your life, you pick the book back up and then the language starts communicating. The reason that there is unfolding revelation and we never exhaust the full meaning of the text is because we are not always in the same place in our lives when we're reading the Bible. The Bible says that God reveals himself here a little, there a little, line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept. This is how God speaks to his people. This is how he communicates. You know, the disciples, they had ministered with the Lord for months And now a storm comes on the sea and Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm. He says, peace be still. And what did they say? Behold, what manner of man is this? Who is this? Well, you know who this is. You've been walking with him. 
but they've never seen it on this wise before because they've never been there before. They've never been in that scenario. And so there was revelation that he was God over creation. He was God over nature. And uh, in fact, when I was just in the Holy Land um, in March, someone suggested, I don't even remember who it was, and I could never prove it, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it anyway, because they said it. They said it, I can say it. They said there hasn't been another storm on the Sea of Galilee since. I don't know, I don't live there. But I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) Peace be still. So, the Lord spoke to me and said, go make disciples. So, I simply began to go back to the Bible. And one thing that I discovered is that there is a big difference between what has come to be known as Christianity in the 21st century and Christianity in the first century. Now, I can tell you that I've grown up in an apostolic church my whole life. I've been United Pentecostal Church my whole life. So anything that I say tonight will not be heretical. That was sort of a joke. I will be in the text. I will be in the book. But, see, we we sort of pride ourselves in a not a bad way, but if there's good pride, then that's what I'm referring to. (laughs) That we are apostolic. This is the Antioch, the apostolic church. And by the way, I celebrate you because this congregation is one of the vanguard churches of the United Pentecostal Church. The conference that Bishop ran here for years, I don't know if you still do it, meet, was transformational. Preachers came here from all the country and all the world. And uh, now the call to war is going all over the world. And so I celebrate you and I thank you for following your bishop and your pastor and and impacting uh, the culture of the United Pentecostal Church. So I celebrate that. But we we sort of pride ourselves that, yes, we're apostolic. We go back to the beginning on the oneness of God. We go back to the beginning on Acts 2.38. We go back to the beginning on separation from the world. We go back to the beginning and wanting to reach the world. Everybody in this building tonight wants to have an impact in the world, in the community, on your friends. Amen. Amen. Isn't the Holy Spirit a go spirit? Isn't it a missionary spirit? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of evangelism. It's the spirit that says go and teach all nations, Jesus said, and baptize them and teach them to observe everything that I have taught you. And so, uh, so we, we sort of celebrate our apostolicity, our apostolicness. But can I tell you that there is still a little area to grow. There is still an area to grow in recapturing the spirit of the first century church. As a pastor, that's what moves me. As a pastor, that's what challenges me. As a pastor, that's what inspires me to know that there's more to uncover. 
There's more to identify. How do I know that? How do I know that? It's very simple. On a good Sunday around the world, in the United Pentecostal Church, we have 40,000 churches. We have about 38,000 licensed ministers all over the world. And on a good Sunday, we might scrape up four and a half million people. Now, that places us with a greater constituency than a lot of mainline denominations. And we're thankful for that. Brother Bernard gave the statistic at the general conference during his message that proportionately we have grown. Uh, we have kept pace in terms of growth and sheer numbers with another uh, very large Pentecostal denomination that uh, we were born together in the same revival in Azusa Street. Our roots go back there together. And so we're thankful for that. But you can see that with a world of 7.5 or 6 billion people. And of course, we don't believe that we're the only church that preaches the truth. They don't have to have United Pentecostal Church on their sign uh, to know and understand and communicate the truth. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Uh, somebody said the smallest church you'll ever see is a church all wrapped up in itself. And so we don't, we don't, we understand that the kingdom of God is bigger than us. It's way bigger than us. In fact, I figured it out. I put the pencil to it. In North America, we have just for round figures, 5,000 churches. And I just threw a number at how many we could seat per average in every edifice or sanctuary. And so I threw a number at that, and I did the math, and we only have enough pew space and chair space to hold a 1.2 million soul revival. And we already have on a good Sunday, just in North America, about 740,000 worshipers. We only have room to double. Do you believe that God has a bigger revival than that? Is there a bigger revival? Yes, there's a bigger revival than that. Oh, yes, it's so much bigger than us. And so my challenge has been to get back to the text because history leads us to believe that by the end of the second century, one half of the world's population claimed to be Christian. That's amazing. That's staggering. So maybe there's something that we have still left undone. And maybe there is revelation for us in how we should be living our daily lives. Pastor was led of God to lead us in this final course, and it was all great. But to be what you want us to be, O oh Lord. Can I tell you what Jesus Christ wants you to be? He wants you to be more than a Christian by the 21st century standard. He wants you and I to go back to the beginning, to the original blueprint. And to rediscover what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
to go back to the beginning and rediscover what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Everybody say disciple. Say it again, disciple. We are not very familiar with that term. We think, excuse me, we think that a disciple is one of 12, like Jeff Arnold said, unemployed Jews. He called Jesus' disciples his little band of unemployed Jews. And I'm one sixteenth Jew. I hope that's not offensive to anybody. So, can I tell you that the Bible only uses the term Christian three times in the New Testament? And it uses the term disciple, I think, 258 times or a form of it. It's all through the, through the New Testament. The reason that I'm sort of differentiating between Christians and disciples is because I personally have problems identifying with some people today who claim to be a Christian. I, I have deep theological issues. Uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of the uh, author and pastor. His name is David Platt. But he wrote, he's written, I think, three or four books. One is Follow Me. One is um, Radical. And he's the only evangelical pastor and author that I've ever heard admit or face the elephant in the room of Christianity. And here's what he said. He said, millions of people have prayed the sinner's prayer thinking that they got saved, not knowing that they are still eternally lost. I, I applauded him. I prayed for him. I celebrated him having the intestinal fortitude to come forward with a statement like that. I'm sure that he's been ridiculed, but every one of us in this room knows that there is no biblical prescription, example, or illustration where anyone ever prayed a sinner's prayer and then got a warm feeling in their heart and they're saved. It doesn't happen in the first century. It doesn't happen in the first century church. We all understand that. So this is one example of many of the problems that perhaps you would have, as well as I, in comparing 21st century Christianity and how the disciples behaved and what they believed and how they lived their lives. Christians declare what Jesus did for them on the cross, but disciples take it further than that and they take up their cross. They don't just celebrate his cross. They take up their cross. What is the cross? It's self-denial. The cross will slow you down. The cross can wear you out. The cross will not allow you to go some places because you can't get through the door with a cross on your back. The cross. If you were carrying a cross in first century Judea, your day was not going to end very well. We don't talk much about the cross. We don't hear much about the cross today. 21st century Christianity expects its members to come to church on Sunday. That's always nice. There's 260 million Christians, or at least people who claim to be Christian in America, but we can only get 
52 million to show up on Sunday. Disciples don't just have 20% of disciples don't show up on Sundays and Thursdays. 100% of disciples are always in the house of God. They never miss. Everybody okay? Amen. Amen. Disciples don't just show up on Sunday, but they make disciples Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. For too many Christians, Sunday is a pep talk and a pep rally and an emergency room. But it's not that way for disciples. Disciples don't come to church on Sunday needing to get pumped up. They come fired up. Because they've been doing the kingdom work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. If we do what we are called to do all week long, Sunday will take care of itself. Praise God. The language of Christianity defines the word minister as a title. But the language of disciples defines minister as an action word. Christianity took a verb and turned it into a noun. Christianity, Christians give 2.5% of their income to the church. Disciples start their beginning at 10% because that's the tithe. And they go on from there with offerings. Everybody said amen. amen. Christianity says, here's what Jesus said. But disciples say, have you obeyed? What Jesus said. Can we take a look at uh, Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20? Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20. This is what we call the Great Commission. These are Jesus' last words before he ascends into heaven and he's leaving it with them. Now, would you agree that someone's last words are pretty significant. How many of you have ever been at the bedside of a dying loved one and you hung on every word that they said because it was precious? You didn't want to miss it. You didn't want to miss the moment. Of course, this wasn't Jesus' deathbed, but nevertheless, Jesus is speaking to approximately, we think about 500. We think about, he's speaking to about 500. Paul said he was seen at once after his resurrection by 500. And so he says, Jesus spake unto them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And somebody shout that name. Jesus. Don't miss it. Go back to 19. Go make disciples of all nations. Have you ever wondered what your mission is in life? Have you ever tried to find your identity in Christ? What is God calling me to do? Can I tell you that we've done all of the, we've done all of the, uh, spiritual gift testing. You know, you know, figure out if you're a, if you're an administrator and, and, and you're a teacher and you're a giver and you're a missionary and you're an intercessor and, and you're an exhorter. I'm an exhorter. Exhorters, they've always got something to say. And they're always happy they can find a verse to back it up. <laughs> I'm just having fun with you. So we do all this gift testing. That's great. 
It helps us find our place in the body of Christ. That's the body of Christ. But in this world, your mission is to go make disciples. What is a heartbreak to the heart of God is that we preach come out from among them so hard that we're pulling people out of the world and getting them out of addiction and getting them out of the madness and the brokenness of the world. But who's going back to the world to make disciples? Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations. All nations. Now that's, that's significant because the nations have come to us. We don't have to go across the seas anymore to reach the nations. One of the greatest missionary fields right now are the universities of this country. You talk about funding a missionary program. That is to make disciples on university campuses and see those young people go back to their indigenous nations and countries. That's what was going on on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was the most multicultural day on the Jewish calendar. And isn't it amazing? That's the day the Holy Spirit fell for the first time. God's sending us a message. Fulfilling the prophecy of Joel, reiterated by Peter and explained by Peter. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That means black, white, yellow, red, brown, Lutheran flesh, Baptist flesh, Catholic flesh, Seventh-day Adventist flesh. Hallelujah. God is pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. All flesh. I've lived long enough to see the baptism of the Holy Spirit crawl from the other side of the tracks to make it to the center stage on the discourse of Christianity. They cannot ignore it any longer. They cannot dismiss it any longer. In fact, if you want my opinion, the greatest sign that we are living in the last days is not wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famine and pestilence and nation rising against nation and all of these things that are going on. The greatest sign that we are living in the very last of the last days is the phenomenal outpouring of the Spirit. Can we just clap our hands to the Lord and thank Him for that? Hallelujah! So Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Do you remember the question that was asked of Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 29? I don't think I gave you that verse. But Jesus was asked this question. Who is my neighbor? You remember that? That was in response to when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is likened to the first, love your neighbor as yourself. And a doctor of the law said, sort of a smart aleck, well, easy for you to say, but who is my neighbor? And then Jesus begins to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And he turns Jewish sensibilities on its head. He wrecks their theology. 
Because in Jesus' day, in the first century, racism, let me tell you something, racism isn't anything new. Prejudice is nothing new. It's as old as humanity. And it's one of the devil's greatest tools to divide people and to humiliate people. And Jesus nailed it. And he situates the broken down guy as a Jew. And he situates the bad guy, the Samaritan, as the good guy. You got to get it. If I had a map up there of the 60 mile wide and 90 mile long nation of Israel with the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and the Dead Sea being the eastern border. Jews that lived in the northern area of Galilee crossed the Jordan River so they wouldn't set foot in Samaria and came back through when they got to Judea so they wouldn't set foot on the nasty, dirty ground of the Samaritans. This is why it sort of blew the disciples' minds. For them, it was a small explosion. But it blew their minds when Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. It's like, (gasps) let it never be said in the law of the Medes and the Persians that we're going through Samaria. And Jesus walks right in to Samaria and he sits on the well because he has an appointment to make a disciple. And so when Jesus is telling this story, It's wrecking their Jewish sensibilities in their mind. The good Samaritan, the one who's the dog, who's who's the low down, who's the no good. He has the milk of human kindness. And when the Levite and the priest go by, he sees this Jewish man. He would have every social right to ignore him. And none of his Samaritan brothers, in fact, they would applaud him. But he goes over there, he, he, he uh, sustains him, he stabilizes him, he pours oil and wine in his wounds, he binds him up, he puts him on his horse, he takes him to the inn, and he pays for this man's rehabilitation. Jesus said, who was this man's neighbor? There's only one answer for that. But let me, let me answer the question. Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is someone not like you. This is the Spirit of Christ. Your neighbor is someone not like you. My prayer for the 21st century church is that God would give apostolic people a love for people that are not like them. Hallelujah. This is close to the heart of God. This is close to the heart of God. And in fact, I have two disciples. One of them is African American. The other one is Asian Indian. I'd say that's pretty much not like me, in case you haven't noticed. I had an African American pastor come and his wife came to Kansas. They flew into Kansas City. Listen to this. They flew into Kansas City. Monday morning, just to hang out with me and my wife. 
for a day. And then the next morning, he and I are drinking coffee and we're talking for about two hours. And I literally had this experience. He said, well, me being African-American. And I went, I didn't notice. It shocked me. This is where the church has to go. That we see all human beings as God's children created in the image of God. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because this is a very multicultural church. But I'm talking about this. If God gives me half a permission, a half green light to talk about it because this is where the revival is. I know that you know it, and I know that you're experiencing it, but we need to pray for this organization that we will take this to a whole new level, and we will realize that our neighbor is somebody that doesn't look like us, they may not sound like us, they may not act like us, but if we will catch the spirit of the neighbor, the thoughtful answer to that question, I know this is idealistic, I I know it, but I'm an idealist, I get it. It's never stopped me, though. The answer to that question will end all war. Who is my neighbor? The answer to that question will end slaughters in Texas churches. The answer to that question will end racism. It will end it. It will end... Jealousy and hatred. It's all in the Bible, people. It's all in the Bible. Can we lift our hands and worship the God of the Bible? Hallelujah. Come on. Who is my neighbor? Praise God. Let's worship him. Let's worship him. Let's celebrate the diversity that's in the body of Christ and the message of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory to God. Praise God. Somebody shout, who's my neighbor? Oh, we got to answer that question. We got to teach this world the answer to that question. Everybody okay? So... When Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He was not exactly breaking ground. This was not a unique message, the essence of it at least, in the, tw- in the first century. Because it was not uncommon to see rabbis traipsing up and down the hills of Judea with their disciples in tow, collecting the dust from their rabbi's feet. Rabbis would choose their disciples. Some of them were very much in demand. And once you got in a certain rabbi's disciple group, you were in. And it was a coveted place. And uh, so Jesus was simply using... The training instrument that was common and prolific in his day. When we hear 
go make disciples of all nations. We don't hear what those ears heard in the first century. This is what I mean when I say, when the Lord's saying, go back to the text. Go back to the text. You know what we hear when we hear go make disciples? In fact, we don't even talk about go make disciples. We talk about go win souls. I got to tell you, Jesus never said go win souls. Sorry. I've said it my whole life until five years ago. I've eliminated it from my vocabulary. Because where has soul winning got us? What's the problem with soul winning? Well, number one, it's not New Testament. It's not really apostolic. The apostolic way to reach the world is to make disciples, not to win souls. Soul winning is from Proverbs. It's mentioned one time, he that winneth souls is wise. It's not really, the context is not even really introducing somebody to God. There wasn't a whole lot that went on about that in the Old Testament. You're born a Jew and you're in. They had a few converts, but not many. And so, everybody say context. See, the phrase soul winning it sounds amazing, it sounds powerful, it sounds spiritual, it sounds supernatural. But as a pastor, when I preach about soul winning, about 95% of the congregation is like... You know why? Because we think that's what Anthony and Vestamangan do. And who can be Anthony and Vestamangan? Nobody else. We think that's just the AAA personality people... And I've heard people say you only need one soul winner in your church to make a difference. But I'm going to tell you, that's not what Jesus said. And that's not biblical. It's not first century. And therefore, it's not apostolic. That's the first problem with it. The second problem with it is when you win, it's over. If I win the race, the race is over. If I win... There's nothing else to do. That's another problem with it. You know, we get all bent out of shape as well we should about the 60 million babies that have been aborted since Roe v. Wade in 1973. But who gets upset when we have 12 receive the Holy Ghost and we're all excited and we're all tweeting it and we're all posting on Facebook, but nobody went home with those people. What's the difference in that? And a young couple giving birth at the hospital. And two days after the birth, they see the little boy. He's all wrapped up in a Smurf hat and swaddled in a blanket. And they look through the bulletproof glass. And they say, hey, little buddy, welcome to the world. We'll see you back at the house. And they take off. Nobody would do that. That's ridiculous. We do that every Sunday. Somebody got baptized. Isn't that great? Man, we baptized 12 today. I had a preacher text me. He texted me. They had this crazy number of people receive the Holy Ghost on, in one service in a local church. I texted him back. I, I wasn't like old man looking through my bifocals going, I mean, I'm millennial. I'm doing double thumb. I'm a millennial right now. I'm, I'm, I'm sending party hats. I'm sending birthday cake. 
I'm sending emojis, explosions. I'm send, I'm tapping on, I'm sending donkeys and elephants and everything I can just punch in there. And I, I'm sending him a text that's this long. I'm going, whoop, whoop. So I'm blowing up his phone. He texts me back, real humble. Thank you. Then I text him back. Now the real work begins. I didn't get a response on that one. Because I ruined his tweet. I ruined his magnificent post on Facebook. You know what? I'll just share this. We had 38 receive the Holy Ghost a year ago when evangelist Josh Herring was with us. I didn't know there was 38 people there that needed the Holy Ghost. We must have prayed through benches and chairs and light poles and I don't know what all we prayed through. I can't tweet it. I can't celebrate it out there. That's just my conviction. Because it condemns me if those babies are aborted. And we don't go home with them. And we don't take care of them. When Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. Was he thinking, well, when they get to the, when the United Pentecostal Church gets to the 21st century, they're like going to scrape up four million. <laughs> they ain't going to do it. I, you know, they can have a nice time trying and send out all these missionaries, but it really ain't going to happen. But I'll let them figure that out when they get there. Is that what he's thinking? No. He gave us a method and a mission. But the problem is, We've got about 1% of the people in the United Pentecostal Church that are responsible for people that are getting baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost. And less than that are going home with them and actually making disciples out of them. Would you help me? Just stand right over here and look handsome. For some people that's a challenge, but for you that's natural. Just stay right there. Sir, would you help me over here? Just stand right here. Thank you so much. So when Jesus said, go make disciples, he wasn't saying, go win souls. So the soul winning paradigm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's a sacred cow. I'm killing it tonight. I'm slaying it. Because when you win, it's over. We all know people who have AAA personalities and they never meet a stranger and they have enough anointing and biblical savvy and they have a prayer life. They can meet somebody on the street and pray them through at the mailbox in 10 minutes. I don't have that gift. You know, it's the tortoise and the hare. And I'm the turtle. I take a long time to build relationships with people. So let's say that, uh, I don't know what your name is, but just to not make it be about you, I'm going to give you a name, Reuben. That wasn't it, was it? Oh, good. Okay, so Reuben has so much personality, he meets Frank. And by he meets him at 9 o'clock in the morning at Starbucks. By noon... He's got him to the church and he's baptized him in Jesus' name. 
and lays hands on him. He comes out of the water and he's speaking in tongues. Does anybody know anybody like that? You got anybody like that at the Antioch church? I hope you do. That's exciting. We got a guy on our staff. He can do that. He's prayed people through in the back seat of airplanes. He's prayed him through at Taco Bell. I don't say this to be humorous. It's a true story. He was teaching a Bible study to a 90-plus-year-old man in a nursing home, hooked up to tubes and hoses. And the guy wanted to be baptized, but the doctors were concerned if they pulled everything out, he would die. So his family signed off, and the doctor signed off. And so they pull everything, and they get him in the water. He says, I now, and he's hurrying. I now baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He gets him down in the water. The guy comes out of the water. He lays his hand on the guy. He said, man, receive the Holy Ghost. And he spoke in tongues for about 10 seconds, and then he, he went to see Jesus. Everybody go, Whew. I mean, that's pretty close. He slid through the pearly gates just in the nick of time. Woo! We didn't get to make a disciple out of him. We didn't even get an offering out of him. <laughs> so, Brother Gary is on our staff. He's got that ability. He's got that anointing. So, day one, Reuben evangelizes and he wins this soul. Day two, he gets John. So he doesn't have a lot of time for Frank because he's focused on John now. We don't even, we don't know. Six months later, we don't know if Frank quit smoking. Have you quit smoking yet? Just in the nick of time. He said just in the nick of time. <laughs> hey, I'll make the jokes around here. So, so we forget about John, or Ruth, um, what's your name? Frank. Because he's working on John. And then day three, he's got Bill. I must not be operating the gifts. I'm not hitting any of these names right. And so this is day three. And so let's just stretch it out. In a year's time, what's your name again, Reuben? Reuben has won 365, and it's a new United Pentecostal Church record, and we're not worthy, and he wrote a book about it, and we celebrate him because he was amazing. But we don't know if any of these people are coming to church. We don't know if any of them stopped beating their wife. I don't know about Annapolis, but in Kansas City, we don't just pray them through. we got to teach them people skills. We got to teach them how to get along with people and love their wife and their kids. In fact, we got to get them married. Am I in the Holy Ghost right now? So 365, 365. Everybody say 365. Woo, smoke over there. So now we got Tom. Yep, yep, it's Tom. It's Tom. He's not a soul winner, but he's a disciple maker. 
So he meets a friend, Mike. <clears throat> they start hanging out. They've met at Starbucks. And he says to his friend, how would you like to? In fact, he asked him, he says, man, I've got a real issue with my dad. He did so many crazy things. It's hard for me to forgive him. And that's a cue card, forgiveness. He jumps in. He says, can I talk to you about forgiveness? And can I share with you my story, what the Lord did for me? See, that's a spiritual conversation. It's building a relationship beyond 12 o'clock noon. It's building the relationship. The Bible says in Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus was accused. You guys stay right there. I'll be, I'll be down in a second. Jesus was accused of being a friend of publicans and sinners. Jesus had friends that were sinners. Anybody got any friends that are sinners? Come on. You got friends that are sinners? Say, well, the Bible says come out from among them and be separate. See, that's the problem. The longer we're saved and sanctified and justified and petrified in an apostolic church, the less effective we become in going back out into the darkness. Listen, you can go back to the darkness if you got the light. Hallelujah. You can go back to the darkness if you've got the light. You won't be tainted. You won't get germs. Praise God. Jesus said, I give you power over all the power of the enemy to tread upon scorpions and serpents. <clears throat> and so he starts building the relationship and he's teaching him the word of God. They might hang out two or three times a week, but at least one time a week, they're spending an hour or two and they're teaching, he's teaching the word of God and he's getting the word of God inside of him. How many's ever taught a Bible study? Raise your hand. I'm so proud of that. I'm so, that's very unusual. I'm so proud of that. So he's teaching him the word of God. But here's the key. Here's where we missed it. You see, the day that changed the disciples' lives forever, listen, was the day they realized when Jesus called them to be a disciple, that Jesus was not just calling them to a front row seat of the greatest show on earth. He was not just calling them to see cool stuff and eat free food. The day that changed their life was not the day he called them. It was the day he said in that same chapter, John 14, verse 12, the things that I'm doing... You're going to do and greater things than these shall you do. Watch this now. When we preach greater things than these shall you do, it's always about miracles, wonders, and signs. It's about that, but it's not just about that. Everything that you see me do in this world, all my ministry, my lifestyle, the way I live my life, the way I spend time with other people, the way I make disciples, you're going to be doing this. So they were following him now to lead others in a future day. This is where we've dropped the ball. Because we're winning souls and we're baptizing people and we're celebrating the fact that they're sitting on the pew, paying tithes and singing in the choir. 
But it's not good enough for this disciple maker because he says, I'm committing this entire year to your spiritual development and growth. But next year, or whenever you and I agree the time is right, what I'm doing with you, you're going to turn around and do with someone else. And so he's been discipled by him. And guess what? He did quit smoking. And he did stop beating his wife. And he did get a good attitude. And he is coming to church. And he is paying his tithes. And he is singing in the choir. But that's not his definition of spiritual maturity. We've got to change the definition of what it means to be spiritually mature in the apostolic church. We've got to change the definition. It's not just paying your tithes. It's not just singing in the choir. It's not quoting the Ten Commandments and thank God for all of that. The definition of spiritual maturity. Can I show it to you? It's Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. Look at this. I just want to get at this altar and pray every time I read this. For though by this time... What time? For the time that you've been saved. For the length of time that you've been in the church. For the length of time that you've obeyed Acts 2.38. Everybody with me? Am I reading anything into the text? Though by this time, you should be teachers. But because you're not teaching anyone. Because you're not making a disciple. Because you're not sharing your life. You're just going through your life whistling while you work. But you're not sharing your life with anyone else. Therefore, now, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And spiritual atrophy has set in because you're not discipling anyone. Now, you're going back to the milk. And it's not, you're not capable of eating solid food. I pastored 35 years. I've never had a problem with a disciple maker. I've never had one disciple maker complain about the temperature in the church. I've never had one disciple maker complain about the choir was too loud or the preacher preached too long. I know I don't even need to do that here because you've got the longest winded preachers in the UPC. And they are the best, too, let me tell you. That'd be a good time for a hand clap right there. You got the best. You got the best. Praise God. People that have their hands on lost people don't have time for foolishness. But it's the stockholders in the church that get upset about stupid stuff. I say let's redefine spiritual maturity in the 21st century and say that you are mature if you're reproducing yourself and making a disciple. Praise God. Let's redefine spiritual maturity. I say let's change it. Let's change the paradigm of spiritual maturity. In the apostolic church, spiritual maturity is not tenure. Well, bless God, I've had the Holy Ghost for 40 years. Not really. You've had the same one year 40 times. 
Man, I need to take notes on myself. That was good right there. Everybody love me? I love you. You don't have to like me, but you have to love me. Praise God. So, you know, you know, I just make disciples. That's a good, good head nod, man. I just make disciples just one at a time. And I make sure I do a good job. And I can take a whole year to make one disciple. You guys tired? You all right? Good. Stay right there for a few more minutes. You got a picture of that stork up there? You got a picture of a stork? Did we get that to him? There we go. There's a stork dropping the baby off at the front door. You know who invented this? Hans Christian Andersen. He invented the myth of the stork, ostensibly to explain to small children where babies come from. So it worked. I guess there in the Netherlands it worked anyway. So the stork comes and it just drops the baby and it taps the doorbell with its beak. And then before they answer the door, it flies away. And this is what Pentecost has been doing for too long. We're praying him through. We get to Pizza Hut. We don't even know where those people are. We didn't get a name, address, or a phone number. We expect them to be back at church next Sunday. We fly off. Okay, now show the other bird. That is a male emperor penguin. Not the female. That's the male. And mama lays the egg... And she says, I'm going to be gone for a few days. I'm going to heal up and get some food. And when I come back, this egg better be on top of your webbed feet without a crack in it. You hear me, young man? And if I was to back, you can kind of see some of it. If I was to back this picture up, There's 10,000 of them, just like that guy. And I love this picture because he's like, oh, baby, (laughs) please save my life. See, and he's got a little fold in his stomach that God created him with. There's a little fold right there that sort of warms it and protects it. And I looked at some of you guys when I was walking tonight. Some of you guys got some of that fold. So I know you're ready to make disciples. And so that male hovers over that egg for 64 days and doesn't eat a thing. Just standing there, freezing in the Antarctic. With 10,000 other guys. How you guys doing? Man, don't talk to me right now. I got, I'm focused on this little chick here. There's going to be hell to pay if mama comes back and it ain't there. I love that. I mean, he's dialed up on that chick right there. So I'm getting ready to preach a message to our church. A while back, and the title was Penguins, Not Storks. 
And it was the day before I was going to preach the message, and it's a Saturday, and we had a men's prayer breakfast. And so we had, I don't know, 60, 70 men, and some of them were our disciples. And this new disciple, he comes up to me and he says, Pastor, can I talk to you in your office after the breakfast? I said, sure. So we go in the office. He told me later, he was in the office 10 minutes, and three times the Holy Ghost spoke to him and said, Tell the pastor you need a penguin. He said, God, I'm not telling the pastor. I'm not telling the pastor I need a penguin. I don't know what that means. He might kick me out of the church. So when I get up the next day and announce my subject, penguins, not storks, he's going, oh, God. He realized he could hear from God. Isn't it wonderful when you come to church and the pastor's preaching what God's been talking to you about? Isn't that a confirming word? That's how the Holy Ghost works, praise God. So we don't need stork soul winning. We need penguin disciple making. And when the mother comes back, the chick hatches. And the first 100 days of that chick's life, the mother and father never let the chick out of its sight. And it probably, and I don't have Bible for this, it probably will take about 100 encounters with your disciple to get them anchored, to get them established. It's not one into his marvelous light Bible study and boom, the magic wand is waved and everybody's going to live for God. Listen, oh, I got to finish these guys up. So, year one, he makes this disciple. Then year two, he's making his disciple. But he don't say, I'm saved, sanctified, petrified, going to heaven. I don't need to make any more disciples. No. He makes another disciple. And he repeats the same process. And he says the same thing to his disciple. What I'm doing, what I'm investing in your life, God's going to put someone into your life. And, and in a few months or whenever the time is right, you're going to make a disciple. Just like I'm making a disciple. But then he doesn't stop making a disciple. He turns around and makes another disciple. <clears throat> Let me stretch it out 30 years. This is why when Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, he wasn't just blowing smoke. He knew what he was talking about. He gave us the mission and the method. In 30 years, we have 10,950 souls that have been won. But we don't know if any of them are living for God. But in 30 years, listen, we have 1 billion. 10,950, none of them are in the choir. We have 1 billion, 1 billion. That's starting with 1. 1 billion in 30 years. Jesus knew what he was talking about. His method to reach the world is not that. It's this. This is what turns the world upside down. Building relationships with people. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Give the guys a hand for helping me. Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus turned sinners into friends. And friends into disciples. It's in the book. Everybody okay? 
Let's lift our hands and worship the Lord and ask the Lord to speak to us tonight. Praise God. Praise God. We worship you, Lord. (coughs) We love your word, Lord. We love your word. We love your word. We love your word, Lord. We worship you. We exalt you. We celebrate you. We praise you, O God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) Praise God. Hallelujah. We're in the word tonight, church. We're in the word tonight. We're going back to the first century tonight. We've got to leave here with a changed attitude and a changed calendar and a changed lifestyle. Hallelujah. 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 Oh, Lord, we hear you calling us back to the first century. We hear you calling us, Lord, back to the model of making disciples, investing our life, sharing our life. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Praise God. God, help us to hear what the Spirit is saying. You see, what I'm talking about tonight is not church growth. Oh, it'll grow the church. But it's not, it doesn't fall under the banner of what we typically associate with church growth. Church growth is a genre of impacting lost people. But it, it has a stigma attached to it because it's typically associated with numbers. And I know all the arguments. You know, God named a book numbers and they numbered 120 and 3,000 and 5,000 and all of that. I get that. I, I agree. I heard a pastor one time say, I have to baptize hundreds to keep 50. That breaks God's heart. That's not New Testament. That's church growth. Have a big friend day. And we've done all that. Block parties, we've done that. Baptize, baptize them. We don't have a relationship with one of them. We just met them today. And we told them to come to a barbecue dinner and we ended up dunking them. We baited and switched. Everybody okay? It's not what Jesus told us to do. When we hear go make disciples, we hear go have a big Easter Sunday. Get the biggest crowd you can get. How did that work out for Jesus? That big crowd he had that day. It's in John chapter 6. You know, fish and chips Sunday. <laughs> Are you having fun as much fun as I am? Yeah. How did that work out? Let me ask you another question. What shape would the church be in today if Jesus would only spend time with the multitude? That sounds like us on Sunday. 
We're just all hyped up about Sunday and putting all of our ministry eggs in one basket called Sunday. The reason the Lord added to the church daily is because they were a daily church. Right in the same chapter says, and daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and to preach Jesus. Amen. So, here it is, Fish and Chips Sunday, free stuff. Free dinner on the grounds. Provided by a little boy and his lunch of five loaves and two fishes. And 20,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children get fed. I've been there, I've seen the spot. There's a natural amphitheater there in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee where the miracle took place. And you could visualize 20,000 people. And Peter, James, and John, they're fired up the executive committee of the disciples. This, look at this, guys. This is the biggest crowd we've ever had. And there's the greatest miracle that human eyes have ever seen. A little boy's lunch fed all these people. These, there's a buzz going on in the auditorium today. We hope Jesus doesn't blow it. We hope he doesn't mess it up. Oh, Jesus, you better make everybody feel good today. We want you to go Joel Osteen on this congregation today. Don't be Jesus today. We need you to say, how are you going to climb that mountain? Just one step at a time. That's how you're going to climb that mountain. You're just going to climb it. And, and you don't want a smooth mountain. You want the mountain to be rough. Otherwise, you don't have a foothold. And if you've got a foothold on that, you can just keep climbing. And then when you turn back, you can see where you came from. Isn't that profound, powerful, and deep? Uh, Jesus, I hope you studied and fasted and prayed. You don't want to miss this opportunity. Because next Sunday, we could have 40,000 if you don't blow it. Jesus gets up and he says, except you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you and you have no part of me. And Jacob and his wife Rachel are sitting on the back row and he looks over at Rachel and says, well, the free stuff was cool. I love the show, but where do you want to go to church next Sunday? Jesus said, is this a hard saying? And the Bible says that some of them said this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And you know what? The whole multitude walked away. This is the difference in 21st Christianity and 1st century disciples. Because 21st century Christians are consumers. Just rotating the crops and going to the church with the best program and the best speaker and the best music team and the best smoke machine and the best lighting and, 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 and the best stuff. And the moment they don't like something, they gone. That's what they say down south of us in Arkansas. They gone. And as Jesus chasing after him say, wait a minute, wait, I don't know what I was thinking. Everybody come back. Give me one more shot at this. He lets him walk away. How can he let him walk away? I thought he's here to reach the world. He lets him walk away because he can never reach the world with a multitude that's not committed. 
And a multitude that's not sold out. And a multitude that's not willing to sacrifice. I learned a long time ago that until I don't know what I've got at the Light Church on Sunday unless I preach commitment. I don't know what's sitting out there. I don't know if they're disciples or Christians or consumers or what they are. But when I preach commitment, I'll find out who's sitting out there. I don't have to be mean about it. I don't have to be ugly about it. You won't know what you've got until you preach commitment. And you will lose people when you live commitment and you teach commitment and you model commitment. And not everybody's going to follow. But at least you choose who you lose. And I've never lost committed people when I preach commitment. I never preach tithing and a tithe payer come up to me and said, you know, that sermon really, I don't know, that sort of ticked me off. No, they're back there. Yeah, are you deadbeats listening to this? I'm tired of carrying all you suckers on my back. It's time for you to start paying your tithes. <laughs> committed people are like, yeah, woo! And Jesus lets them all walk away. Why? Because he's got 12 that aren't going anywhere. The multitude may leave, but disciples last. Disciples are camping out. Disciples will never walk away from the truth or from commitment. Oh, God, give us a baptism. Jesus could have never reached the world with the multitude. He reached the world with 12. And then the 12 made disciples. And their disciples made disciples. Disciple-making language is throughout the entire Bible. Paul said, imitate me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, as I imitate Christ. I'm going to talk about that tomorrow night. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. When Jesus said, follow me, he wasn't inviting them to some little Cub Scout wannabe group he was inviting them not just to see cool stuff and miracles but he was inviting them to to become like him imitate me paul said praise god everybody okay praise god we're not going to reach the world with lazy christianity in the 21st century a consumer church that's out there. These guys that start these churches and have 2,000 people in four Sundays, they're not disciples, they're shoppers. They're consumers. But who's willing to take up their cross and follow him? Would you stand with me? Jesus said in Luke 14, This is the difference in what Jesus said and what Christianity says today. Jesus said in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he what? Shout it. Cannot. Shout it again. Cannot. Oh, what do you mean? Christianity is inclusive. Everybody is in. It doesn't matter what your lifestyle is like. It doesn't matter if you slept around and hoard around all week long. Just come and get up there in the choir. 
Doesn't matter if you never quit smoking, drinking, doing drugs. That's fine. We love everybody just the way you are. Can I tell you something? God loves you the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. Jesus said, if you don't hate, that's an unfortunate translation. It, it, what it means is subordinate. If anyone comes to me and does not subordinate his father to me and his mother to me and wife and children and brothers and sisters to me, in other words, you can't have any idols in your life. Because anything that takes the place of God in priority and passion, emotion and worship and devotion is an idol. And Jesus is intolerant. I don't care what all the communities say today, and I'm not going to name them. He loves everybody. He accepts everybody. Uh-uh. Exclusive. You cannot. Next verse. And whoever does not bear his cross. Nobody's talking about the cross. Jesus said, if you don't have a cross, you... You can't be my disciple. Can I ask this sweet congregation tonight? Do you have a cross? Do you have a cross? Do we know what the cross is? There's not much teaching or preaching about the cross. I know that the Bible says that the cross is self-denial. But can I tell you the cross is not your gallbladder flaring up and you know, your brother-in-law that annoys the dickens out of you and, you know, people you got to put up with in your life. That's not the cross. That's God trying to knock the rough edges off of you. Do you know that the Scripture says... Could I have a musician? Thank you. Scripture says that when Jesus was carrying His cross that he stumbled. And there was a man named Simon from Cyrene they compelled to take up his cross. Simon was the only one that felt the weight of Jesus' cross. It was about 100 pounds. Some of you guys, maybe some girls, have put a rack of shingles on your shoulder. It's 80 pounds. 20 more pounds than that, with all of his blood loss, having no food to eat, nothing to drink, in over 24 hours. He wouldn't even eat the Last Supper or drink the wine of the Last Supper. He's weakened. He's been beaten within an inch of his life. One commentary said, if you were to look close, he'd been beaten and whipped so fiercely on his back, you could have seen his organs through his ribcage. He stumbles, he falls. They compel Simon. Who's my neighbor? Who's your neighbor? It's somebody not like you. Simon is from Cyrene, a province in northern Africa. He's an African. It's an African that feels the blood of Jesus rubbing off the cross onto his cheek. And he carries that cross perhaps a quarter of a mile. And when he laid it down, he laid down Jesus' cross, but then he picked up his cross. And we know it because Mark 15, 21 says, and they compelled Simon to carry his cross. The father of Rufus 
and Alexander. Why would Mark include Rufus and Alexander unless they had become prolific disciples in the first century church and the whole church would know who Rufus and Alexander were? Simon went back to Cyrene and he made disciples out of his sons and they become such prolific disciples that the whole first century church knows who they are. And to further argue the point, in Romans 16, 13, Paul says, Salute Rufus and his mother, even my mother, Simon now and his son Alexander having passed away. But there's something about Simon's wife who is such a godly, mature woman in Christ that Paul, the great apostle, adopts her as his own spiritual mother. Simon did not play around with that cross. When he laid down Jesus' cross, he picked up his cross and he made disciples. So what is my cross? I'll show you what my cross is. My cross is my disciple. This is my cross, people. Do you have a cross? This cross is heavy. This cross slows me down. This cross costs me money at Starbucks every week. This, this cross, sometimes when I get phone calls at 3 o'clock in the morning, it's uncomfortable to carry this cross. And I drag myself out of bed and I rush over to his house and help him not go back on that binge he did last time. Do you have a cross? Come on, let's, t- let's pick up our cross right now. Someone, somebody pick up a cross. Does your cross have a name on it? Oh yeah, this is about the mission, people. This is a mission. Don't leave this house without picking up your cross. Put a name on your cross. Let God talk to you about your disciple. Who's ready? Who in your life is ready for you to make a disciple out of them? Who's in a crisis? Who's broken? Who's hurting? Who hurts so bad they want to change? They want to change their life. They want to change their lifestyle. They want to change their attitude. Oh, I thank God for you, Antioch. Come on, Antioch. We're going to shake this city. We're going to shake Annapolis. What can we do in 10 years? What can we do in 10 years if everybody made disciples? That's it. Pray in the Holy Ghost. Pray for your neighbor right now. 
Pray for your friend that you made that's still a sinner. Pray for him. Pick up your cross. Pick up your cross. Take up that cross and carry it. Hallelujah. This is the mission. This is the mission. This is what Jesus told us to do. He said, go and make disciples. Go live your life intentionally. Go live your life with purpose. Go live your life penetrating someone else's life. Hallelujah. I want you to come forward if you got a name on your cross. Come forward if you put a name on that cross today. It might be Bill. It might be Janet. It might be Tom. It might be Sonia. It might be Sophie. It might be Nathan. Just keep coming forward. Folks are coming behind you. Let's make a commitment to go make disciples tonight. Put a name on that cross. Come on, put a name on that cross. Oh, God.
In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, 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 in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Karamanda ye ala boko roto lobo satala bahaya. Ikalaramando robo ye ala basata rabaki andala bahaya. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. El amando robo koshata la bahaya. Kalaramando robo koye alarabosata la bahaya. Jesus' name, Jesus' name, Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Jesus name Jesus name Jesus name Jesus name Jesus name Hallelujah 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 Ikarabakaye alamando robo satala bahai Kalaramando robo sheye alaraboko riandala bahai. In the name of Jesus, 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 in the name of Jesus. Ilamanda Rabaka City, a Rabaka Talabahai. A Laramando Roboco, see Alarabahai. Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, Jesus' name, Jesus' name. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Jesus' name. Jesus name Jesus in Jesus name in Jesus name Hallelujah 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 
in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, hallelujah, 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 thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Such a deep move of the Holy Ghost in this place. If I could put it, I guess, this way. What I feel, what I sense right now is really the gist of what I was trying to say on Sunday night with regards to the fact that we're not looking for a program or a gimmick or a trick. We're looking for a work and a move of the Spirit of God. I, I think I could say what I feel here is revival. That, 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 that's what we mean by revival. It's what's happening in us that's going to cause us to change so that something is produced that lasts. I, I I feel such a I feel such a a response from your spirits. There is a uh, there yes, brother Mott. There's a there's an amen. There there have been some verbal amens, but more more importantly than that, I feel an amen in some spirits. Hallelujah! Oh Jesus! My 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 my. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. 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 Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. We say yes to you tonight, Jesus. We say yes to your word. We say yes to your spirit tonight. In the name of Jesus. 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 In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Praise God, praise God. Those that are going to be able to be here the next two days, let's come with open spirits and open hearts, open minds as we've had here tonight so that there can be a divine work of the Spirit of God that takes place. I don't know about you, but I want to be transformed. I want to be transformed. I want to be changed. 
I want the Spirit of God and the Word of God to bring about change in my life. I can't expect change in the sinner's life if there's not a change in my life. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Thank you so much, Brother Gleason, for following the Holy Ghost here tonight. Thank you for saying what we need to hear. Amen. God bless you. There's, there's, there's just one of those lingering spirits here tonight. <laughs> Praise God. Amen. I'm going to put the mic down. You can linger if you want to linger, but 